Hello and welcome to the weekly podcast of Christian Chapel in Columbia, Missouri. Today, you're going to hear Kent Kelly from Crossroads International. So the mission of the church matters, and as we take care of the mission here at home, we are also partnering with, with our, can I say, staff members around the world. Sometimes we look at our missionaries, I said it last week, we look at missionaries as contracted workers for the gospel, that they might go and do our, our work somewhere else. But I don't see our missionaries as contractors. I see them as staff members, people we love and support and resource because they carry the mission. They're, they're part of our reach. Well, this morning we have the great pleasure of having Kent and Jeannie Kelly, missionaries uh, to Africa, India, Pakistan, through their uh, ministry called Crossroads International. You, you'll get to hear a little bit about that this morning. I really want for you this week to be part of our Meal with Missionaries uh, events throughout the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, as we host several missionaries. This is a chance for you to personally hear the stories and ask questions and talk to them on a one-on-one basis. Sometimes it's easy to hear a missionary from up here and say, oh, well, that's kind of cool. But really want you to engage, and that's why these meals with missionaries are so uh, critical to our understanding and connection to mission. Uh, So this morning on your way out, swing by our table in the foyer uh, and sign up for one of those. There's more information online at c2church.com and how you can get involved with one of those meals this week. Kent will be sharing at the meal on Tuesday night. Now, Kent is a little different than most missionaries for several reasons, but I only mention one. <laughs> He's my favorite uncle. So somebody in first service was wondering if I was being sarcastic. I said, did you like him? And they said, yes. I said, no, he actually is my uncle. <laughs> Uh, anyway, <laughs> would you give my uncle Kent Kelly, our missionary, a warm C2 welcome this morning? Oh, uh, the church is alive with humor. That's great. Uh, I don't know how to, how to actually let you know this, Pastor, but I have been uh, asked by at least a half dozen people for stories. So I told them that you must have known that was coming because you shortened my time to be able to share. So there's no time to do that. But um, I promise you that if you come Tuesday, that we might have time for some of those juicy tidbits of blackmail that you might need later. But uh, I'm just a little worried why so many people want to know the dark side of Pastor Jeremy. So <laughs> says something. Hmm. Anyway, um, it's a pleasure to be with you. First off, let me begin by saying thank you for your support. This church does support Jeannie and I. And by the way, um, Jeannie, you want to do the princess wave so everybody can see it? There we go. That's the, that's the better half uh, of our life. And... Um, it's okay if you say that because everybody says it, so it doesn't really matter. I've gotten over it, almost. But um, let me just say that uh, time will not, we're going we're gonna, to, hopefully some pictures are flashing behind me as we get into this. I'm going to take just about two minutes uh, to share some about Crossroads, kind of more from the big angle version. And uh, we have a table in the foyer. And there's some brochures, there's some information, there's a CD you're all welcome to take. And it'll certainly tell you a lot more about Crossroads and specifically some of the ministries that are going on that you might want to be interested in. So after the service, right out the door, just grab them as you go. If you're interested, honestly, in knowing more about Crossroads, there's also a way to sign up 
for the e-newsletter that we send out that tells you what's happening around the world. But let me tell you this. First off, that Crossroads has a fourfold mission, which is very similar to, to most organizations. We do evangelism of the lost. We will do discipleship of believers. Uh, what we might do that others aren't doing is that we focus in specifically on identifying and then developing emergent national leaders who are going to be the face and the movement for the future, not just of the body of Christ in that region, but also for missions. And our objective is to raise them up, develop them, empower them, and then release them. But we also are heavily involved in a lot of projects that we refer to as humanitarian. The, uh, the objective there is to alleviate human suffering and poverty, but we bring the gospel into that mix as we are doing that on a constant basis because we believe that the greatest poverty is the spiritual poverty of your life. That if we feed you only to let you go to hell, that there's something wrong with that equation. That it isn't love to only dig a well. It's not love only to feed a child. It's not love only to educate someone. That there is not love to set you free from sexual uh, trafficking and that bondage only leave you in spiritual bondage. That we must do these things as believers because we have a heart of justice and we are engaged in the darkness. We are light. We are to light that light. All these things should be done while we are sharing the life-liberating, set-free deliverance through Jesus Christ and his message. So that's Crossroads. That's the four focus that we have. Specifically what we do, by the way, some of the pictures are flipping up. I don't have eyes in the back of my head, so I'm assuming they're going. But these are going to be pictures of various people that we have worked with, people or projects that are ongoing, That so you get a, fa- a quick flash of some of the things Crossroads is doing. But just to give you a, a kind of a synopsis, we are involved in church planting, obviously, through evangelism. We run what we call Youth Awakenings, which are youth renewal movement we're doing, particularly in India. The part of India that we're in, in Nagaland, which is on the far eastern side next to Myanmar, was a region of the world that had been evangelized, believe it or not, in the late 1800s by Baptist missionaries, and you swept tens of thousands of headhunters, uh, the Naga people, into into the kingdom of God, and they've been very staunch uh, Christians, and uh, um, Islam as well as um, Hindu, Hindu religion has not been able to penetrate that region for over a hundred years. That is changing drastically. I just got back, by the way, on, um, what day did I arrive, honey? Wednesday night, Thursday? I don't know. My brains are still in India somewhere. Uh, but I just got back, and one of the things that we discovered as we're setting the vision for this land and what we're doing out of that base is we came to discover in the last five years over 500,000, according to the newspaper, 500,000 Muslims have moved into that area in order to evangelize it. So obviously we had quite a conversation about how does Crossroads engage the darkness that God has brought into our neighborhood. We don't retreat. We engage. We are the light. Light dispels darkness. And just as a sidelight, I know we always talk about dispelling darkness, but one of the things that I want us always to remember, and we do in Crossroads, is light also attracts lost people. You ever been lost in the pitch black of a forest? 
the first thing you do is look for the campfire in the far distance and you head that direction. The light that you turn on in your lives, in your neighborhoods, the way you live out your life, does attract those that God already knows are hungry for and thirst for a life of righteousness. That's why your life is so important more than your words. Now, you need to add words, but your life is indeed the most important thing. Because not everybody is attracted. But those who already themselves are in a pit of hopelessness and despair and are looking through the darkness, those are the people who are fertile ground for the sharing in the stumbling way we do because God isn't looking for experts. He's looking for available people. And therefore, we fulfill his commission. So we're involved in church planting. We're involved in youth renewal movement, as I said, in India because we've now found a generation that's risen up that has an outward appearance of being Christian. They have it as a culture, but there's no fire of God inside of them. And so we're running on the streets of Nagaland in its major cities and in its universities. We can still get in the university. Can't get in the university in America, but I can get into a university in a Hindu nation, India. And we can openly preach the gospel. We just sent a team of Americans, uh, late 20s, early 30s, we sent them over there, and they did 11 different universities in Nagaland. And we have documented, because we only count noses, we don't count ears, we have over 1,000 young people in the middle of their school auditorium who stood up and received Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Okay? <laughs> Hundreds of those young people approached our staff there, and asked, because they know the church is empty, and they asked, is there not a way for you to disciple me? Which takes us to another thing Crossroads does, discipleship. So we've recently built a school of discipleship, or a a shell of a building, that's going to host training for many of these thousands of young people, because our belief is that as God brings the nations to us, we have a responsibility to engage that darkness, but then thrust backwards out into the nations with a new force and a missionary force. Our focus is on the indigenous force that we're sending out. So we'll do that. We do the humanitarian, as I said. The point of that is not just to be gracious and to care for people. The goal is to lift you up out of poverty. There's no point, as I said, about feeding a child and leaving them in poverty any more than you leave them in spiritual poverty. The idea is to lift them up out of it through Christ, through the message, but through your good deeds so that we put a responsible adult in society who is also now a witness of Jesus Christ. It's a full package, not partial. We do early childhood education programs called Alpha Care. You can find about that more back at the, um, whatever that is back there, table. Thank you. Had a senior moment there. I'm not even senior yet. That's great. I'm excited. Um, that's just great. Anyway, the Alpha Care uh, is called ASHA Project, and ASHA is the Hindi word for hope, and this is exactly what we're doing. But it's people like you. It's Americans who, for $22 a month, sponsor a child out of the slum in Nagaland, India, It's a Hindu-Muslim slum. We intentionally target that, not Christians, because we're going to bring your kids in here. We're going to feed them. We're going to clothe them. We're going to educate them. But we're also going to have open time in which we're going to read the Bible stories to you. And we're going to make sure you understand the principles because we want you to go home and share them with your parents. 
which is an exciting moment in our life because then it becomes what we call flaming evangelism, meaning they're hot and tempered and they come and they knock on our door and we have a moment of exchange. Your heat for our light. Your anger for our love. Your hatred for our peace through Jesus Christ. We create moments intentionally. We don't wait for them to come. We poke the pig in order to antagonize so that we can have a moment for Jesus. We don't have all our life to wait for moments, so we create them intentionally. That's crossroads, okay? The other thing that we focus on is, as I said earlier, we identify in the mix of wherever we are in the world, we identify the emerging leaders, young guys like you folks right up front here, who have a call of God on their lives but don't have the skill yet or don't know your gifting. And we take that person and we begin to develop and unpack their gifting, their calling, their passion. And we begin to design ministries then that express that. If you'll step into full-time with Jesus, we will full-time pour into you. And now we're going to unpackage you and then do ministry together through you. The whole point there is we don't want to replace Western missionaries. We want to replicate ourselves. Because what happens when we can no longer send? I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. I could die tomorrow on a plane. Crossroads International U.S. office could go down in flames. But Crossroads South Africa will carry on because 13 people there that we discipled and mentored and poured our lives in for 10 years are now carrying the gospel into that nation and the nations around and are doing it without our aid, without our help, because we completely indigenized it. It means Crossroads Nagalan. Crossroads Nagalan would carry on with its Alpha Care, with its youth awakenings, with its church planting. Exciting thing is Crossroads is actually planting its very first church in India starting next month. We're excited because we're going to transform the church experience with God's help and manifold ways that are going to send out people from that city and from that town. So we're very excited. If I was completely to, to pull the, the, the curtain back and just say, well, in a synthesized way, what is Crossroads? It's three things. Compassionate evangelism which is why we do the humanitarian, but we do humanitarian with purpose. We want an end product. We want you to step out of poverty spiritually and physically. We want you to have a different destiny than the one that Satan's written for you. So our compassionate evangelism has a purpose beyond just being compassionate. As a matter of fact, one day when I was in prayer, God spoke to me and said, compassion without purpose is meaningless sentimentality, good only for the one who feels it, of which I objected and, of course, claimed that that was Satan immediately only to be rebuked and said, no, I never do anything without purpose. My son did not die on a cross simply because of love. He died on a cross, driven by love, in order to liberate you so that you could be all that I've called you to be. Purpose. Never get caught up just in doing things to say you do them. Do them with a purpose. Crossroads is also about birthing leaders, as I've been talking about. But Crossroads also, finally is about planting indigenous missions agencies. Probably that is what makes Crossroads unique, is that we measure success by one thing. Did you work yourself out of a job? And in South Africa, Crossroads South Africa, in one decade, 10 years, we did what takes most groups 80 years. 
We have 13 people, all South Africans, on staff. We have 12 different ministries, one of which is feeding over 12,000 children every day of the week. Okay? We are on... You in America are driving the church off your campuses. We're on over 11 high school campuses with Bible clubs every day. That's just two ministries. I don't do it. No Westerner does it. We planted, we reproduced ourselves, re-replicated the ministry. That ministry will continue to impact the world with the gospel, whether I have anything more to do with it. And by the way, the trigger... It's all paid for with South African money. We did it in a third world country. We created an organization that funds itself with local money. Okay? So that's Crossroads. You can know more at the table back there, okay? All right, we're going to do something with our time that remains. We're going to uh, do something a little bit maybe that might be unconventional in the sense that uh, when you think about missions, you typically think of Matthew 28, you'll think of Book of Acts, you'll think of a lot of these different uh, things. you think of characters like Paul, uh, Timothy, Peter. Uh, these are the usual go-to uh, verses, go-to guys. But uh, we're going to do something a little unconventional. We're actually going to look in the Old Testament at the book of Haggai. Now, most of you don't know where that is, so don't, don't worry. Okay, you don't have that, you, you all had that spiritual blank moment. I could see it in your eyes, like, uh-oh. He's not looking at me because I don't know where it is. Okay, it's simple. It's three books from the, from the end of the Old Testament. Now, you're welcome to turn there, but this is also what we're going to do that's unconventional. We're not actually going to read it. It's just a page and a half, folks. It's not long, okay? But we don't have time to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to simply talk to you from it and ask you to read it later. So for time, if you don't mind doing that. So that's what I mean by unconventional. We're going to go to the Old Testament, to the shortest book of the Old Testament, the book of Haggai, and we are going to plummet to find out about missions. Now, those of you who might have read Haggai before, you might recognize that, you know, what does he have to do with missions? Because you're probably thinking, well, isn't that about the Jews returning from exile to the promised land? Isn't that about temple building? I mean, what does that actually have to do with missions? Well, those are the circumstances, I'll give you that, that Haggai deals with. But Haggai's message is not about resettlement. It's not about rebuilding, but the purposes behind the resettlement, behind the rebuilding. And that was simply this. It was God sent Haggai to make sure that he redirected back the focus of these entrepreneur missionary Jews to get them focused back on the missionary purpose for which God called them in the first place. And that's what I'm hoping to do with us this morning. It was through prophets like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, like Daniel, that these entrepreneurial missionary Jews first got an inkling that they realized that their engagement in missions, and that mission was to return to the promised land and build the temple, that they understood that by doing that, they were actually going to be ushering in the Messiah's coming. So this was a pivotal moment in their mind. This was not just, should we go save the masses? This was not about return to the homeland. This was about a full-orb missionary empowerment that they looked at and they said, if we do this, if we answer this call, we are in essence taking a quantum leap forward 
in God's historical time clock to move forward the coming of the Messiah. I would venture to say that like these people, we also have been given an opportunity through Christ's Great Commission. When we invest our resources or ourselves into the Great Commission, into missions, be that missions around the corner of this church, be it in Missouri, be it halfway around the world, it doesn't matter because all the principles are the same. When you engage, you are actually helping us take that quantum leap towards the second coming of Jesus. That's how important this is. It's not about compassion, about bloated babies in Africa. It's not about the starving. It's not about water. It's not all these things we do. But it's about the reason why. And the purpose behind our mission is that we ourselves, us in this room, are thrusting forward that clock, that timeline, ever more towards that moment when Jesus comes again. Embedded within this short book, it's only two chapters, folks, you will find three principles, or what I like to say, three potential derailers to a missionary movement, to your activity as a church in missions, whether it's you as a church or you as individual church members, all these principles, all three of these, apply across the board. And it applied to these Jews, and it applies to me, and it applies to you. The first potential derailment is simply this. The only way to pick up God's mission is to lay down life as you have come to know it and enjoy it. Let me say that again. The only way to pick up God's mission is to lay down your life as you've come to know it and enjoy it. The only way to engage in God's agenda for other people is for you to disengage from your agenda for your life. The only way to pursue God's mission is to stop pursuing my own. I refer to this as that great earthquake of missions. It's that great tremor that runs through our hearts and minds as the realization of the cost to us personally or financially starts to rise and we get a real sense of what this is going to be. And all of a sudden there's this seismic tremor that runs through that causes us to recoil, back up, reassess, and for most of us, fall. God either has changed his mind, or I'd love to give, but I, and I know I made a faith promise, but, you know, I can't, and therefore I'm off the hook. Let me just say this about faith promise. It is never the amount. Never. What it is, regardless of the amount, is that God is calling me to do something. And if I get a number in my head, and here's the number I think I can, but here's the number that I think God's calling me to, this is the great moment for your faith to grow between those distances. If I only do what I know I can, I need no faith. Doesn't that make sense? I need faith to move the distance between where I am and where God is calling me. 
And don't you want to be always where God is calling you? So when we give, even if we don't go, the fact is it is a challenge. It is an opportunity for faith to grow. But also I ought to expect that the moment I say yes to anything, the wheels will come off of everything. Why? Because God is wanting to test the measure or take a measurement of what you say in worship by what you will commit in doing. In other words, he's testing your metal. This great cave-in, by the way, happens when we give financially, as I said. Um, Let me just say this uh, without being too coy. Uh, giving is always a sacrifice. It is always a sacrifice. If you give only what you can, it is not a sacrifice. It might be an offering, but it's not a sacrifice. Giving is intended, be it your life, be it your money. Giving in the kingdom of God is intended to always be a sacrifice. Because God, as I said, is now measuring the distance between what I worship and what I commit to. I am not being judged. I am being measured. And the distance between where I am and to what I say or where I need to go, this and this alone is now the time or the distance for faith to grow. So all the time I'm praying, God, show me yourself in new ways. God, give me this. God, let me see this. Let me understand that. God is now answering that prayer because he's given you a challenge. And by faith, you've said yes to this. But now the reality starts sitting in. And there's this quiver. There's this tremor. And there's this seismic shift going on of a battle and this tension. And now you have a chance to grow. And God has a chance answer that prayer that so easily came off your lips and was the echo of your heart and God knows it and God wants to give but if you do not stay the course your faith will forever be infant we forget that laying down life as I have come to enjoy it is not something that I do once at an altar, but is something that I do throughout my lifetime. Whether it involves my going or my giving, God is not impressed any longer with what I did last year. He's questioning, by giving me opportunity, what am I going to do with today's opportunity? I was faithful yesterday. My question is, will I be faithful today? The reason why this tension remains constant through our lives is simply what I've already said. Faith is defined, matured, and proven in this distance between where I am and where God is calling me. The second thing that might derail any church's mission or any individual mission or any giving towards missions, the second thing that can derail us is If we're not to be derailed, we must be willing to embrace a life that has become vastly different than I ever imagined. Now, these missionary Jews that hit the field in Judah naively believed that everything was going to work out grand and glorious because, after all, I'm answering what God said, right? 
And God's the ultimate God. He's the ultimate hero. What could possibly go wrong? Okay? Everything. But God called us. Yes, God did. But God, we're doing your work. Yes, you are. But God, we know sovereignly you're involved because we got the edict from the king and the king supplied all the timber and everything down the list it goes. How could we be wrong? You're not wrong. You're just not willing to embrace the life that has become vastly different than you imagined. And that's why you're hitting the skids. Once these Jews got to Judah, they found a familiar land but unfamiliar territory. There was a political machinery in place now that wasn't really welcoming. It did not meet the conventional wisdom of the day. And that conventional wisdom wanted to make sure that we put these would-be missionaries, these well-to-doers, out to pasture. Neutralize if you can't remove them. So there was a lot of heat. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of pain. No sooner did they arrive there than all of a sudden there was an economic recession in that area. Their entire support drew up. Everything went on skids. And as that pressure and tension continued to happen, instead of looking up, they continued to look down. And looking down, all they saw was problem. If they had looked up, they would have remembered purpose. Discouraged, disillusioned, they settled down into a survival mode. Everything was focused on family, about providing shelter and food and clothing for mine. There wasn't anything to share, ludicrous to even suggest. And so God sends Haggai to regain their purpose and to remind them why you meet on Sunday, why you serve God, why you've come thus far. Now finish the race. They had lost their purpose. Haggai helps them get them back by reminding them that God is not going to change any of these circumstances. Your challenge is, will you embrace a life that has now become radically different than you ever imagined it would be? In other words, they had to start be willing to accept that the struggles of life, the reduced economic welfare, did not change the purpose that they had to embrace that as part and parcel now of God's will. What was at stake is would they be people of purpose or would they simply be missionaries, another group of believers taking up space, waiting until it was time to go home. I don't intend to simply fill space. I don't intend to live my life without purpose. Therefore, I engage and I embrace whatever comes my way. And I suggest that possibly you might need to, too. The third thing is that we must face uh, the inability, I should say it this way, it's the derailer is the inability to face ourselves. And I'm going to give you three statements from that. From Haggai, when you read the story, you'll see the first thing he wants them to face is their fear. And here's the fear. The fear underlying is that if I say yes to God, 
whether that means giving to help finish the building project, if it means going, meaning into my community and actually being a light and salt, I may actually lose stuff that I may never get back. Yes, that's true. You will lose stuff you will never get back. But you will never lose more than you ever gain. When Jesus dealt with the same issue with his disciples and they said, we've given up everything to follow you. We've left family. We've left home. We've left reputation. We've left work, employment. And Jesus comes roaring back in a rather unapologetic way. He says, no man has given up family, loved ones, careers, opportunities, reputation for me that will not have this in a hundredfold. We don't lose We gain. You will never lose the stuff you feel you lost. You simply invested. You do not lose. Though you feel loss all the time. Whether it's giving financially or it's going, it doesn't matter. What God is looking for from us today is a rugged abandonment, much like these Jews of that day. An ability to find the metal and the backbone to say against all odds, against the very gates of hell, I shall go. I shall make it happen. By the very will that God gives me and by the power that he grants me, I will go and the gates of hell will not stand. That's the ruggedness that we need. We need to stop measuring everything by a feeling or by circumstances. What circumstances in Jesus' life were good? If we measure Jesus' experiences by what we believe today and what subtly runs through most publications, most books in in the Bible bookstores, you would come to the conclusion he was an absolute failure. But he's the only one hanging on a cross who can say, it is finished. When I end my day, I want to end it with the words, it is finished. It doesn't matter how I finish, but let's finish this thing once and for all. Let's be that generation that brings Jesus roaring back into this earth and usher in heaven. But let's be the generation that finishes us once and for all. We not only need to face our fears, but we need to face the limitations of our faith. By that, what I mean is simply this. Every one of us have limits on our faith. We may sound real good, unchallenged, but when we get challenged you can know exactly where those lines of demarcation are. I can trust God as long as I got $5,000 in the bank. Faith promise, not a problem. Boom. Okay? Got a job? Boom. Not a problem. What happens when you don't? Does the promise disappear? Does the faith disappear? The promise only disappears that the faith did. Be careful. Be careful. I challenge you to believe God big. But I challenge you to don't mince words. It is a faith 
promise. It is a promise given by faith. And the only way it won't happen is because of the limitation of my faith. Believe God. Believe big. Dream big. Go big. Or don't go at all. We don't serve a God who does it halfway. We just serve a God fully engaged, full throttle. And I invite you to join me as we follow that God into the impossible. God, no doubt, will force circumstances upon us that will face us with the reality of the limits of our faith. And he will do that intentionally. And the reason why is because the distance again between where you stand and where he's calling you, this is the moment of growth. This is the where revelation of God happens. This is where intimacy with God happens. It does not happen in the stale old status quo. It happens into the venture of the unknown to where God already is and to where he's calling you. If you want a new reality with God, then look up and find out where he is and move that direction. The distance, the growth of faith happens between the distance of where you already believe God and where you believe God is calling you to. Only there is there growth. Only there is that kind of revelation that we anguish for where he shows himself to us in such ways that it literally alters life. God is waiting to where he's calling. The question is, are you willing to go there? The third and final thing I want to share with you is the third derailment, or the excuse me, the third thing that Haggai asks us to face when he talks about facing our inabilities. He talks about we must face ourselves at the place of God's ownership of our lives and our destinies. I want to split these into two statements. First, God's ownership of our lives. When I think of God's ownership of our lives, I think in the 1800s, there was a passionate group of 20, 30-something-year-olds that rose up in the American church that had a sincere, deep passion for Christ, but also had a very, very deep passion to see Christ preached among the slaves of the Caribbean. That there was a burning call of God on their lives. Though few in number, very passionate. They could not, though, get the American church ignited with this idea of of rescuing and delivering slaves in the Caribbean. Why? Because their own back door wasn't cleaned up yet. But it never quenched, quenched the passion they had. No matter how much they shared, they only ran into resistance. The islands were shut off politically, economically. The only way you could get in is if you're a politician, landowner, or slave. The more and more they prayed, the more obstacles they ran into, to eventually, one day, they decided that there was a way to circumvent the politics and circumvent the finance. All they had to do was to die to themselves. And so they sold themselves into slavery so that in selling themselves to bondage, they might bring freedom to others. So as setting themselves as prisoners, they might set prisoners free. And they went into the Caribbean as slaves and brought those nations 
to God. These are people who understand what it means, God's ownership of my life. Your job does not own you unless you have sold your soul to it. Your career is simply a means to an end. It is not your purpose. Surely you live for more than boats and 60-inch screen TVs. Maybe, hopefully, you live more than the tickets at a game. Surely there's more to life. Surely there's more. God's ownership of your life. When I think of God's ownership of our destinies, I think of the story of Gracia and Martin Burnham, missionaries for 17 years in the Philippines. You might have heard their story back in 2001. They were on a, their second day, I believe it is, of a reenactment of their honeymoon. They had been doing missions for those years and been hard, been difficult, so they did the unthinkable. They actually went to a resort, and they were there just to relax, just to unwind, just to get some downtime. That all changed that afternoon as a Muslim terrorist group took over the resort, killing some, capturing all the rest. Some were freed immediately within 24 hours. The others, like Gracia and Martin, were drugged through the forest and the jungles of the Philippines, evading and eluding the army of the Philippines that were now in fast pursuit. News channels around the world, of course, captured the story and are enthralled with it as they told story after story about the ordeal. It was a year-long ordeal, but I want you to listen to Gracia's own words as she talks about that time in the midst of what would be an impossible situation. Here's what she wrote. Martin showed the love and the compassion of Christ throughout the year of terror to both captor and other hostages. He always graciously offered to carry things for the terrorists as well as other hostages that were sick and hurting. Every night, a terrorist chained him to a tree like a dog. There he slept. But every night, Martin would thank him for chaining him up and wish him well. Throughout the ordeal, Martin maintained his faith in Christ and his zeal to share Christ, both to the terrorists and to the other hostages, reminding them of the claims of Christ, but of forgiveness for sins as well as eternal life. In the end, he was highly respected by his captors, if for no other reason than the undying flame of Christ in him. The terrorists were constantly on the run, which meant Gracia and Martin were constantly on the run. One day, after a very long trek of 10, 12 hours, they were allowed to sit in a hammock together. And there, they began to reminisce about the year. And Martin said, it's been a very hard year, but it's been a good year. Can you imagine saying that? It's been a good year. And sitting there, they both began to thank God for the opportunities, to thank God for their hammock, for their boots, and they began to remember every believer they'd ever known and thank God for them. The last thing before Martin's death was to pray and thank God for his faithfulness. And he laid down for the first time in over a year without being chained to a tree. The next morning would be the 
rising of the sun would be awakened with the crackle of gunfire as the army had surrounded the Muslims, terrorists, and were now engaging them in a battle. Everybody's scurrying, and in the midst of it, Martin is cut down and dies. Martin and Gracia's obedience to the Lord, his perseverance throughout this life-altering ordeal, to me, are contemporary examples of what I'm trying to get across to you if we are to finish this, if we are really going to do it, then now is the time, but we have got to answer this question. Have we come face to face with the question of God's ownership of our lives as well as our destinies? Answer that, and you will have the answer to everything else. Do not fill your life with stuff. Do not fill your life with people. Fill your life with purpose. And all the rest you can enjoy. Can anything less be expected from any of us who truly, truly want to be used by God? I'll close with this. Answering the call to go is one thing. Staying the course is quite another. Praying for missionaries as they go, that's one thing. Giving them the resources to do it. That's quite another. Like the missionaries of Haggai's day, Gracia and Martin were willing to lay down their lives in order to pick up God's mission. They were willing to embrace life that had become vastly different than anything that they would have ever chosen for themselves. And through it all, they were willing to face themselves, their fears, the limits of their own faith, and finally, God's ownership of their lives and destinies. My question to all of us of all ages here, my question to you is this. Are you willing to do the same? What are you willing to do? Where are you willing to go, be it financially or giving yourself? Etched on Martin's headstone are this, is this reply when asked by a church, why the Philippines why are you a missionary? He said, I wasn't called to be a missionary. I wasn't called to the Philippines. I was called to follow Christ. And that is what I am doing. Can you say the same? Hey, we are so glad you listened in. If you need more information on how you can get involved in missions work at Christian Chapel, go to our website at c2church.com.